Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I put it this way in an Instagram post a while ago. Marriage is great, but only if it's a great marriage. And I'm always encouraging everyone in my community to never settle and to hold out for and keep hoping and believing in an extraordinary connection, an extraordinary relationship, something epic, not mediocre. So today we're going to look at the research. What does psych research show us about the difference between a mediocre or a pretty good marriage and a great marriage? To help us understand this, we're bringing onto the program Dr. Terry Orbach. Dr. Terry Orbach, also known as The Love Doctor, is an author, speaker, therapist, professor at Oakland University, and research professor at University of Michigan Institute for Social Research. Dr. Orbach has published thousands of articles and authored six books, including Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great. She is also the director of a landmark study funded by the National Institute of Health, where she has been following the same 373 couples for almost three decades. Dr. Orbuck has been featured in such national publications as The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, USA Today, Cosmopolitan, Reader's Digest, and Time Magazine. She has also appeared on The Today Show, The Katie Couric Show, ESPN, and CNN. Her relationship segments are aired on Fox TV Detroit, and she is a relationship expert for OurTime.com. Her PBS TV program titled Secrets from the Love Doctor has been airing since 2013 and is available as a DVD on Amazon.com. Dr. Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Dr. Karen. Great to be here. We are very like-minded in that your entire body of work is grounded in research, which I say like-minded because I'm the type of person who... If someone tells me something, I'm like, that's interesting. Uh, what's the research behind it? <laughs> you know, I appreciate all the voices and positive influence in spaces about dating, relationships, and marriage, but I always look to the research. I need to see the data. So your book, which we're going to talk about today, Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great, is completely grounded in a longitudinal study you have been conducting for a very long time called the Early Years of Marriage Study. It's funded by the National Institute of Health. So tell the listeners a little bit about what prompted this study, because from this study that from reading your book, it carried on a lot longer than you even anticipated. You've gleaned so much great wisdom to help couples have the best, most exceptional and extraordinary marriages that they can. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen, for that introduction and all your kind comments about my research. It's a wonderful study. And in fact, it's the largest study of its kind in the United States. So we started in 1986 with a sample of married couples, and we've been following those 373 couples now for over 30 years. And as you said, it's funded by the National Institutes of Health 
46% of the couples have divorced over time. So I like to say now, Dr. Karen, that I've been studying 746 individuals, about a half of whom are still married to one another and a half of whom are no longer married to one another. And many of them, in fact, 71% of those individuals who divorced or lost a spouse due to death, actually have repartnered over the long haul of the project. And we started with marriage licenses in 1986. All of the couples were in their first marriage. And we interviewed them both as individuals and as a couple. And as you said, my book is on the happily married couples and what they did to stay married and to stay happily married over time. And I love it because it's a very practical, you, you're really brilliant at taking the data that, as you mentioned, even in the book, most of us aren't going to go pull a peer-reviewed journal off the shelves and start pouring through it and try to get through the statistical jargon and so forth. But you take that knowledge base, ground it in the research, and then you disseminate it to something that anyone could read. And the beautiful takeaway message I got from the book was that it seems like if you haven't really looked at the research and haven't looked at really what the practical strategies for enhancing marriage are, one might think, oh gosh, those lucky people with their wonderful marriages. But really, it's a lot of little gestures, little habits and practices that anyone can implement to, as you say, take their marriage from good to great. Yes, I think, Dr. Karen, you know, everyone thinks that marriage or a good marriage takes hard work. And we hear that all the time, either from our friends or the media, our parents. And it's exactly what you said. I really found in this study and that I talk about in this book that it's simple, consistent, small gestures and words and strategies that anyone can do in their marriage make it exceptional. And I think we all want an exceptional marriage or relationship. Yes, some of us are in marriages that are okay, good, or even great, but anyone can take it to the next level and make it exceptional. And I think that's really what the book is about. Simple ways, practical simple ways that you can make your marriage exceptional. So I have a lot of women, because my book, as I was on your radio program before, talking about single is the new black, don't wear white till it's right. So I have many listeners who are singles. But even when I was single, and I know my audience, they're interested in, let me learn now about healthy marriage strategies. What can I do now as a single person in my dating relationships? What should I look for? What can I integrate into my life that can help me prepare for marriage? So it's really a book that anyone can benefit from, even if you're not married yet. Absolutely. First, thank you so much for being on my program, Dr. Karen. You were great. And I love talking to you about singles and and how they're shamed and and their expectations. But I think you're right that anyone can read this book. Because, for example, in the first chapter, I talk about expectations. And there are those should statements that people have about how relationships should progress or what partner should do. We all have those should statements, Dr. Karen. But what mm-hmm. we need to do is make sure that those should statements are realistic and that they are okay to have because if the realities of either dating or early relationships or long-term marriages or partnerships don't match those 
expectations or should statements, what happens is, is that we get frustrated and disappointed and frustration eats away at the happiness in a relationship. So anyone can read this book and learn about expectations, about things that you can do early in the relationship that you can even have in mind about conflict and disagreements and how relationships progress, whether your partner married or single these days. And I love that you speak to expectations and to have high standards, but realistic expectations, because so often people are internally concerned about their marriage, but so much of it is because they have this notion that it's supposed to feel like they're on their honeymoon for 40 years. It's just, (laughs) there's just so much of the, uh, there's a lot of normalizing that weaves its way through the book. And you also, as a clinician, you have some stories from your patients and the clients that you've worked with. And that, again, as I read their little vignettes, I thought, oh, wow, we are all just (laughs) so, so similar in the way that we are experiencing our lives and our marriages. Right. Well, because when you think about it, you know, society, our culture, the media, romance novels, movies teach us these expectations. For example, as you said, that, you know, when we're in a relationship, it should always be passionate and exciting and adventurous and having sex all the time. Well, that's not a realistic expectation. As we know, as I have found in my research, that all relationships, passionate love, and that passion declines over time. Relationships can't handle it, right? And also our bodies can't handle that passionate arousal (laughs) for too long. Everyone has these unrealistic should statements, and we need to identify them and then change them so they're realistic. So that when we go into a relationship and all of a sudden, like after the 12th month or even the 18th month of being with this person, excitement and passion declines and we're not having sex as often as we were at the beginning, we may say, wow, you know, maybe there's something wrong with my partner. Maybe there's something wrong with this relationship. But instead, we could say, wait a minute, science research shows that all relationships, this is what happens after about 12 to 18 months of being with someone. And when we do that, then we can look at our partner, we can look at our relationship, and we will feel differently about that relationship. And you're right. It's not that we have to settle or have different standards for who we're going to partner with. But we have realistic ideas and notions about relationships and partnerships. And that's what having realistic expectations really means. And you had an example in the book, the husband comes home from work early and the wife's been working at home all day. And as much as she loves him, that kind of messed with her schedule. <laughs> she was in the mm-hmm. middle of an email. And, and so just this kind of things where the husband might come home and expect her to be like, yay, he's home early. <laughs> she had some agenda that she was working on. And so as much as she loves him and she's glad he's there, she's not quite ready to return the enthusiasm. And so little things like that. And you mentioned early in the book that according to your research, and it flies in the face of some other studies I've seen, but I think it's related that the number one reason people struggle in their marriages is frustration. And I've seen sex and finances as always at the top of those studies in terms of the number one problem in marriages or the number one reason for divorce. But 
of course, frustration is, is pretty all encompassing. It could include frustrations with sex. It could include frustrations with money. And so you give so many practical ways to diffuse frustration and help us have a little more grace with each other in marriage. Right. And yes, you know, Dr. Karen, that frustration can come from sex or money. And actually, in my study over time, money was the number one source of frustration and conflict and disagreements. Not sex, but money. But as you said, it can be these small little things. And by the way, I do not have a perfect marriage. No one does. Mm -hmm. And we all have unrealistic expectations at I always share the example in my courses. I teach interpersonal relationships at the university here. And the example is that on my first anniversary, my husband came up to me and said, oh, you know, sweetie, honey, I would love to make this meal for you for our anniversary. I'll make it from scratch. You just tell me what you want. And I remember so vividly, now I've been married 28 years, Dr. Karen, but I still remember so vividly looking at my husband and saying, I expect us to go out on our anniversary. I am so not excited about this. And my face, of course, must have shown that because my husband said, oh, I didn't mean to upset you. I thought I was doing something nice. And I'm sure that at the time it wasn't so nice with these words <laughs> because I was frustrated and disappointed. And guess what? He was too. And it was this small little thing that probably lasted a few days, but it was because of the frustration that occurred when our expectations were not met. And that happens to all of us in all kinds of relationships, but especially when we're really invested and we care about someone, it's even more likely to occur. Yeah. It's just part of doing life together. It's unavoidable. He had this most sincere and loving desire to, to yes, celebrate yes. in that way. <laughs> and you had another vision for how you should celebrate. Right. And you know, my students always say, I can't believe you said that, Dr. Orbach. <laughs> Why didn't you say it in a better way? Right. Because also what happens when we're frustrated is that we say things in not wonderful ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always need to remember that when we communicate, especially with our partners, but also our children, our parents, our friends, our work colleagues, that we can say the same thing in different ways. And that how we say something is so important for the impact it has on our partners or our relationship with others. I agree so wholeheartedly. I actually get a little frustrated when you hear kind of the cliche of communication is everything. Communication is key. And I always want to say um, also how we communicate because my husband can say something and if he says it with, hey, sweetie, blah, 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 I'm just more receptive to it as opposed to why didn't we get blah, blah, blah at the grocery store? But if it's, hey, sweetie, our apples are going to be on the list next week. Right. <laughs> exactly. Which is a much better way, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shoot, my bad. And we go about our day. If you're single, you've likely heard it all. You've been told you're too picky. You should just get on another dating app or that you're not trying hard enough. And you're probably really tired of hearing those messages because I know I was when I was single for all those years, which is why I felt the need to bring another perspective to the dating relationship self-help genre. 
Single is the new black, don't wear white till it's right, is my take on what the single life can be if we refuse to settle, we know that we're worth an extraordinary relationship, and we refuse to fall prey to single shaming. Trust me, it is a different self-help book. Check it out on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or on my website, www.drkarin.me, D-R-K-A-R-I-N dot me. Another thing from early in the book that I thought was really important, because I get this question a lot, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. Birds of a feather flock together, or do opposites attract? And you find from your research, then you say that attitudinal similarities are strengths in marriages. Let me see if I can get the quote exactly. There's no danger in having too much in common with your spouse. Exactly. Because it is a myth, a common sense notion that opposites attract. You really want birds of a feather flock together or the notion that you and your partner are similar. And when I'm talking about similarity, I'm talking about attitudinal similarity or similarity in these key life values. And these key life values, Dr. Kieran, are what make us us. They're the underlying, really important parts of us. So, for example, how important is faith, religion, or spirituality in your life? Not what religious denomination you are, but how important it is, how much you infuse it into your life. What I have found following these couples is that you want that similarity in terms of the amount or how or what you infuse into your life or the role of family and children in your life or the balance of work and family or even how much nutrition and exercise and eating well is important to you. Those are our key life values and you want to have similarity with your partner. When we are opposites, what I have found is that then what occurs is what I I call unresolved conflict or disagreements. We all know that couples, romantic couples, have conflict. In fact, there were 12 couples in my study in year one who said we never have any conflict, no disagreements, nothing. None of those couples were together in year three. So having conflict is okay. It means you're talking about the important things, but if it's unresolved, that's not good over time. And when you have similarity in those underlying key life values, you have less unresolved conflict. When you're opposite, you have more unresolved conflict, which eats away at happiness and leads to divorce over time. Yeah, and I think that is just such an important word, again, for folks on the dating scene because they do get these mixed messages. And sometimes I think part of their dating journey may include someone who's very different from them. And that may be a fine relationship for a season, but to build a life with someone, you're talking about day in, day out. And again, your research shows that frustrations are going to happen. And frankly, when you have similar values, core values of life and what life's about and what the purpose is and the meaning, you just have fewer big, big ticket items too. These values are very core, like you said, to who we are. You just have fewer 
uh, opportunities really to have frustrations and conflict in those big areas. Absolutely. You said it perfectly. And I just want to share that it's okay to have different interests. It's okay to have different hobbies or music likes, food preferences, because that actually brings some excitement to relationships. You can come back and you can teach your partner about a salsa dance class or your salsa dance class or your hobby of, of making wine or beer. And that adds excitement and interest. But it's similarity, like you said, in these core key life values that's important over time. Someone on my Instagram community was talking the other day. I can't remember what prompted her response, but she was mentioning that she'd been dating a guy. And it was definitely a lifestyle difference where she wanted to work out every day or at least regularly and eat pretty healthily. And he was straight up couch potato. And it started to wear on her nerves because it was so core to who she was and what she believes to be the appropriate way to do life. She couldn't continue on with the relationship. And I thought, well, that's probably for the best. They clearly were not aligned enough to go the distance. And I think that's very common as well, because as you said earlier, and what I found is that in my research is that people are attracted to their opposite at the beginning. It seems like someone who is different from me is exciting. And thinking about having a relationship with someone who has the same key life values or core beliefs at the beginning sounds boring, but Mm -hmm. I think we need to shift that approach and shift that language and say, remember, like you said, it's these lifestyle values. If they can have differences in terms of interests and hobbies and they like to eat and what movies they like, but it's these lifestyle important similarities that really can be exciting as well. I found somebody who is like me and it's mm-hmm. easier to even bond together when you have similarity in these key life values as well. I think it's so important. And it's always, I think, uh, exciting for me to see that the psych research confirms or sheds a new way of looking at something we think, yeah, I guess that does make sense. And now I'm, I can be even more diligent or intentional about this practice because I know that the research shows that it's, it's effective. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that flies in the face of common sense, but goes with common sense as well, is another really interesting finding. What I find when I ask the couples in my study, do you communicate with your partner, is that everyone says yes, even those people who are unhappy. Most people in long-term relationships, happy or not, are doing what I call maintenance talk. They are saying, who's going to pick up the kids, do the grocery shopping, pay the bills, call mom, do the laundry. Happy couples do more than that. They do what I call real communication. They share their dreams, their goals, their aspirations. They talk about things that are not maintenance talk. What are you talking about? Are you revealing personal information about you and your childhood? And if you won the lottery, where would you travel to and why? Or if you had a superhuman power, what would it be? And again, Dr. Karen, you don't have to ask these exact questions, but it's really 
Are you revealing personal information about you? If you are, and if your partner is, whether it's early or later on for these long-term couples that I've been studying, that promotes more happiness in that couple and in each of those partners. So that's something that we can think about whether we're single and early dating or even in a long-term marriage of 30 years, what are you and your partner talking about really? Yeah. And you have a really practical application for this. You call it the 10 minute rule. You need to talk about friends, stressors, life dreams, values, but you can't talk about work or the kids. You mentioned there's a couple of topics that are off limits because those are part of those maintenance conversations that you're probably having quite frequently. But this 10 minute rule, I thought, that's a really good idea. I should implement that with my husband over dinner because I think it is so easy just to get caught up in the have tos that need to be checked off the list. And then we forget to kind of enjoy our spouse for who they are and learn about them the way we did in, like you said, when we were dating. And you mentioned that you implemented this with your husband and you learned something brand new about him. And you guys then decide you need to get a living will. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So all kinds of things can emerge from this 10-minute rule. And this 10-minute rule is every single day. So some couples will say, oh, no, you know, 10 minutes is so long, right? But then other couples say, oh, that's not long enough. That's okay. You can talk more than 10 minutes, but you want to try to practice that 10 minute rule every single day. And as you said, you want to talk about something other than work, family, children, who's going to do what around the house or your relationship. And when I say that last topic, Dr. Karen, people always go, what, what does that mean? And what it means is you don't want to talk about how are we doing? Are you happy? Am I happy? Or the early stages, what's the state of our relationship? By the way, that's the number one taboo topic (laughs) daters should not talk about when you look at research is where are we now? What is the state of our relationship? And so all kinds of other topics can be discussed and you'll learn new things as I learned about my spouse, as well as, you know, the conversations get really interesting as well. And people change what you thought was true at the beginning of your relationship or five, 10 years into a relationship, people change and that's great. So find out new information. Don't assume you know everything. It's wonderful and it adds to excitement. It bonds couples together over time. And I want to speak a little bit more to the relationship talk portion of this because I found it really interesting. And I think I think it's just inherently interesting to look at the differences between the way that men and women operate. And you found through your research that women, if we have a talk about our relationship, we feel closer, we feel intimate. And that is very edifying for our connection to our spouse. But men, if you're like, let's talk about us, <laughs> men will feel often, oh, wait, she's bringing up some sort of problem. I'm not doing it right. <laughs> so men really don't want to have tons of conversations about the relationship per se. Yes, you know, and I was so surprised about that finding. In fact, at first, I didn't even want to publish it, right? Yeah. Because it was such a distinct difference between men and women. And by the way, I should say that in psychology, as you know, Dr. Karen, there are so many similarities when it comes to gender and men and women. 
But when it comes to relationships in my study, I found so many differences between men and women. While you said, you know, relationship talk was so exciting and rewarding and it was like an aphrodisiac for these women that I followed Mm -hmm. over time. It was the opposite to men. And so there are these different meanings when it comes to relationship talk. So I think we both need to be aware that the opposite gender, if we're in a heterosexual partnership, thinks about relationship processes, and a good example is relationship talk, very differently. And we need to be aware of that and the impact then that relationship talk has. Because in my study, men not only thought that it was a problem, but it was their fault. Even if she was talking about something positive in the relationship, uh uh-oh, it's my fault, right? Something is wrong. I know she's talking about the relationship. It's going to be a problem. She's starting out positive, but it's going to go in the negative direction. (laughs) And we saw that as we videotaped and audiotaped these couples over time together, as well as then interviewing them separately. So as women, we need to be aware that when we bring up relationship, even though we love it, (laughs) myself (laughs) included, um, that it has a different impact on my husband or men in general. Yeah. And that I love that you pointed out, though, that if men can at times let their lady talk a little bit about the relationship (laughs) stuff, that they may have a benefit afterwards because she will feel more amorous and sexual. Yes, absolutely. It is an aphrodisiac. Women in my study said that they felt more desire to have sex. They were more interested in sex and they were more amorous and romantic in general. So we can have a benefit. So (laughs) men who are listening, you can just remember that no matter what, when she brings up relationship talk, it may have nothing to do with you. She just really likes that. And it makes her interested and desirous, not only of sex, but of you and the relationship. Yeah. So another little practical application, a little word to the wise, if they can kind of meet in the middle there, that would be a benefit for both of them. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. Another element that I found surprising that I think listeners may find surprising as well is that when we look at, you talk about giving incentives and rewards, so keeping that positive reinforcement throughout the marriage, but that actually you call it effective affirmation, that husbands need this actually more than wives. Yes, and that's a surprise, but a very interesting gender difference as well. When men say 
that their wife or female partner affirms them often, makes them feel special, noticed, seen, right? That couple was almost two times more likely to stay together over time. And so, I mean, that is such a significant finding. And in fact, affirmation was the number one, even more than sex, number one essential ingredient for men have a happy, healthy relationship. It predicted stability. It predicted happiness for men. And I think what happens first is that we forget to notice our partner, Dr. Karen. You know, it's so busy. We're busy with children and work and family and volunteering in our community and getting fresh food and exercising. What happens is, is that we put our relationships and our partners on the back burner. And we think when everything dies down, we'll get to it. But what we know and what we find is that we all have a biological need to be needed. And so recognizing, making, paying attention to your partner is so very important, but it's even more significant for men. And we looked into this finding a lot because it was so interesting, as you said, and so surprising for me. And what we found is that men and women get affirmation differently throughout their days. As women, you and I, Karen, get that affirmation a lot through other people in our lives. We get it from our friends and our neighbors and our sisters and our children and our mom and all kinds of other people. Even the person, when I go into the coffee shop on my way to the university, will say, oh, Terry, you got a new haircut. I like it. So we get affirmation a lot, but men don't get that affirmation in their lives regularly. And so they crave it. And it's so important and get it from their partners. And when they get it, they feel noticed, they feel seen, and they feel over time. And I think these gender differences are so interesting and so important for us to remember. You know, my husband says, I think men are pretty simple. They just want affection and affirmation. That's how he's always said it. And, (laughs) but then we were reading the five love languages, which I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Gary Chapman's work. And so then I think, well, is it all men or just my husband, which it's great because actually we have the same love languages. So we're really lucky, (laughs) but it makes it easy to give the love that we want to receive and vice versa. But do you find that something like that, that there's nuances within, but ultimately still men, it's, it's that affirmation, those words of affirmation in general are going to be more necessary for husbands? Well, I think affirmation in general is significantly more important for men and the stability of their, our relationships with men, if we're heterosexual, but the way we give affirmation can be very different. So I found there were two significant, I know that Chapman looks at five love languages. Mm -hmm. I really found two important ways that affirmation was expressed and affirmation was expressed through words or through actions. And people could differ in a partnership, but identifying how your partner wants to be affirmed, either through words or actions, was very important. And when you give affirmation through words, then you say things like, I love you, you're wonderful, you make my life exciting. One of the women in my study said that she always tells her husband, every week, I would still choose you if I had to do it all over again, which always Mm. gives me goosebumps because it's such a nice phrase. And she knew that her husband needed that affirmation through words. 
other people need affirmation through actions. So my husband, for example, puts gas in my car. Um, You could turn on the coffee pot in the morning because you know your partner needs caffeine. You could fix something. You could touch. You could give a hug. You could give a kiss. So what I found is that even though men need affirmation more than women, significantly, regularly, and that's important for the couple, the ways in which men need that affirmation may differ. So it's important to ask and then to make sure that you're giving the affirmation in the way that your partner wants or your husband or wife wants. Because if we give affirmation through behaviors, let's say, if I'm putting gas in my wife's car and I'm buying her flowers, but she's looking for the words, it won't matter that I'm doing the actions. And we are not going to be seen by each other because I'm giving her affirmation in a way that she is not noticing. And so it's very important to ask and give the kind of affirmation that your partner wants. And that reminds me of another finding from your study. So for women, they love to hear, I love you, but men, it's more affirming to know that they're sexually attractive. They'd rather hear, you're so hot, baby, kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So that there were differences in my study and there are differences between men and women in terms of the words that they want to hear. Because think about that. A man really never says to another man, if both men are heterosexual, oh, you look hot. You're great. You know, (laughs) where did you get those clothes? They're amazing on you. But as women, even heterosexual women, we get that often. Wow, you look great. I love that outfit on you, right? Or where did you get your haircut? I want that haircut too. It looks amazing. So we're constantly affirming each other, whereas men don't get that often. So it's so important to hear it from a romantic partner. So there are differences, even by gender, in the words that men and women in general, and I should say when I'm talking about research findings, it's not all men and it's not all women. We know when we look at science that there's about 20% that don't fit any of the findings that I'm saying today. And so if you're one of those listeners, don't worry. You're just one of those 20% and that's fine. But when we talk about research findings, we're talking about 80% of the people. Yeah, most people, most of the time, but yeah, we want to be (laughs) mindful of the uniqueness uh, and uh, that we're all individuals. But I do think it's helpful in general to look at how most men experience marriage and how most women experience marriage. I did want to speak to what you call the happiness plateau. And you say that there are, there's two ways that this happens. It could be uh, falling into a relationship rut or letting that passion and sexual attention and enthusiasm fade. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing that happens, and, and that's exactly it, Dr. Karen. First, I should say that there are two ways that that happiness plateau can occur. And the first way is when boredom or a relationship rut sets in for a period of time. And what I found over time with these couples is that we all have these ruts where it's the same old, same old. And and I'm sure listeners are thinking, well, I like it when we're doing the same thing and Mm -hmm. that I can predict what my partner's going to do or say. That's okay. That's one of those ups and downs and relationship ruts. That's okay. 
But what I found is that if you stay in that rut for too long, and, and it's more than like a year, let's say, where you're doing the same old, same old, at every single date night or every single Sunday morning or every single vacation is exactly the same, then boredom begins to set in and boredom eats away the happiness in a relationship. And so you want to be conscious of that in a relationship to just gently rock things just a little bit. And so you don't need to skydive or you don't need to <laughs> you know, go on a safari in Africa, but just gently change things up. So for example, I tell my clients all the time, instead of going out to a movie and dinner on Saturday night, go do an event instead where you play putt-putt, miniature golf or bowl or take a salsa dance class or you go out for brunch on Sunday morning, totally different than Saturday night. Just change things up a little bit. And the second uh, reason or way that happiness can plateau is if you don't continue to reignite passion in your relationship. As we know, studies show, and in my study as well, passionate love declines, the excitement, the arousal. But that doesn't mean that you can't reignite it. And by doing new and novel activities with your partner, by doing surprising, mysterious things, like going to work and, and saying, I want to take you out for lunch or bringing a picnic to their uh, place of work, or even sending a text in the morning like, never done before and it's a shock to your partner. Those activities, those things reignite passion. And the last way that you can reignite passion so you don't have a happiness plateau is what I call arousal producing activities. That means do adrenaline producing activities with your partner. Go to a comedy club, see a scary movie, go on a roller coaster. Those adrenaline-producing activities, when done with your partner, we know, studies show, that the arousal that's produced through that other activity can get transferred to your partner in your relationship. And again, you can reignite passion and excitement. I remember a study I read in grad school that's similar to what you just mentioned, and I saw it almost as a cautionary warning for people dating because while this would work great in marriage, you want to have that physiological arousal and go, oh, my husband, wow, I'm getting excited with him again after all these years, right? That's great in marriage. But if you're dating someone, they talked about doing like a scavenger hunt or doing some kind of yeah skydiving or something like that, you will become aroused. And you may think that you're really into this person that you're dating, but it's really you're just having a physiological response to the activity that you did. Exactly. And those are great studies. They're done by Aaron and his colleagues. And, you know, they use two groups of couples. And absolutely, if you are in that group in these studies, or if you on your first several dates do these arousal producing activities, you're going to think you're in love very quickly because the adrenaline is transferred to your partner. So you're tricking your brain and it's you think that it's due to this relationship, but it's really due to the roller coaster ride or the scary movie or jumping out of a plane. I love those studies. They're great. Yeah, they're fascinating. But I just think for my folks on the dating scene, 
Like keep it low key so that if you are aroused, it's because you really are into this person and it's not this misattribution as you were mentioning. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen. That's D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me. And of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Another thing I wanted to ask you, and I didn't see it in your book, but I was wondering if you had looked at any effects of getting married later. We were talking about this happiness plateau or taking each other for granted, which is impossible not to as the years go on. But I'm always encouraging some of my listeners who may be getting married later, as I did, is it possible that because we had to have so many years in adulthood single, that we in fact would maybe be less likely to take each other for granted? I was wondering if you ever uh, analyzed for anything along those lines. I love that idea, though, Dr. Karen. I didn't look at it in terms of taking for granted or in terms of, you know, uh, appreciating a partner if you're older versus younger. But what we did look at is age of marriage. And in my study, the partners were so similar in terms of age of marriage that there wasn't enough variance or difference between the partners. But when I look at other studies out there, we do know that when people get married later, they know themselves better. They know their needs better, and they're able to communicate those needs to a partner. And when your partner knows your needs, they're much more likely to meet those needs, and you're much more likely to be happier. So there are significant differences when people get married later, they're less likely to get divorced, and they're more likely to know themselves and their needs. But I would love to look at whether or not they're more likely to affirm their partner as well. Yeah, if you ever come across any studies on that, have to email me so I can share that with my audience. That would be great. You know, along those lines, I did want to mention, you speak to this in the very beginning of the book. I have listeners and women in my community who get told, well, you're so independent and you're so accomplished. You probably intimidate those men with all your education and degrees. And you found, in fact, that wives' education level actually is predictive of divorce, but not in the way that you would think. The more years a woman has in terms of her education, the less likely she is to get divorced. Isn't that a wonderful finding? Yeah. Someone, as both women who have PhDs, that's a nice finding. <laughs> and that is what we found, that the more education a woman has, the less likely she is or that couple is to divorce over time. Every year of more education, the less likely you are And so it's not saying that you should get your PhD women out there. It's saying that education is important for your relationships. And it's because when you become more educated, you have more opportunities to seek out information about relationships to help you improve, to help you figure out, to help you understand your relationships. You're more likely to seek out self-help books. You're more likely to seek out 
coaches, therapists, counselors, religious advisors, you're more likely to have opportunities as well, not only to become independent, but to do your own thing. Being and doing your own thing is so important. When people have their own interests and space and friends, they're happier in their relationships. Now, too much space isn't okay, right? You don't want to not spend any time with your partner, but having some time to yourself and interests and hobbies and friends is okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of family systems and the family systems literature, which of course we look at enmeshment, which can happen within families or within a couple. And I just did recently a post about that where I did a Venn diagram of you and your partner. And then that overlapping part is your relationship, which is lovely, but it can't be all consuming. And then I did another Venn diagram where the circles were almost on top of each other. And that would be an enmeshed couple. And people get that confused. They, and there's a lot of rhetoric and and messages in our culture, right? You complete me and my life was void and empty before you came and gave me purpose and meaning. And my listeners who are independent women who are strong and capable, they don't want to think that they can't be strong and capable and opinionated in their marriages. And your research, your findings, it shows that they absolutely can and they will be appreciated and valued and cherished for their strength and independence. Absolutely. And I like to say always to my clients, Dr. Karen, that you want two strong eyes, capital eyes, right? Two strong, independent people. But you also, like you said in that Venn diagram, want to have an overlap of the two strong eyes with a we. Because mutuality or that sense of a we is also very important. So have two strong eyes, capitalize as well as a we, a couple identity. Yeah, I love that because obviously if you don't have the we, then what's the point, right? Then exactly. just be single. <laughs> so again, having been single for so long, getting married at 42, I had no interest in losing the person that I had worked hard to become, but at the same time I didn't get married to be single. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, you want yeah, you want that we in place. So intersect, become what we call in psychology, interdependent, that it's okay to affect and impact one another, but you do not want to be fully meshed. I love that. So you round off the book talking about costs and benefits. And I think this is a really nice model for us to understand. And you speak to Gottman's research, which looks at the percentage of positive happy, joyful moments, experiences, interactions versus negative. And the statistics you have here is that it really should be about a five to one ratio. About 83% of your interactions with your partner should be positive. And I think this is, again, another really great implication for folks dating because in the dating world, you're setting the foundation for your marriage. And if you are having so much angst in your dating relationship, that is a huge red flag. Sometimes people think, we'll get married, things will settle down, it'll sort itself out. And I, for one, say, no, 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 no. The dating, that's when you are bringing to the table your A game. So if it's if it's super conflictual and super difficult and more negative experiences, that ratio isn't in place while dating, that is a big red flag. Absolutely. And you want to co keep costs low and the strengths and the positives high. And I hear that all the time, too. When we get married, things will change. Or when we have a child, things will change. Ooh. But what we know when we look at study after study is that the now is 
best predictor of the future. And so if costs are high and they're more than that five to one ratio, five positives to one negative, then you really want to sit down and explore and identify what's going on. And I provide in the book an audit. I like to say that people should do an audit of their relationship. <laughs> And understand that if you're in a long-term marriage and the costs are high and the positives are low, that you want to change things up and you want to address the costs so that the positives can be high. But one of the really important things that I found in this long-term study, you know, following the same couples, is that when couples start with the positives, they focus on their strengths, they focus on their positives, that motivates them to work out the negatives, the costs that are in that relationship, and it motivates them to move forward. So anytime you have an issue or a problem with a partner, whether you be a dating partner or a long-term partner, focus on the strengths first, the positives, and then go to the costs or the negatives. It's easier to unpack the costs when you've already established those strengths and positives. I have a lot of uh, young women in my community who will think about breaking up and they, they're they weighing those costs and those benefits. And it's scary to think of letting go of a relationship. And it's almost like there's a scale, that balance of how much good is still left in this relationship? And is it enough to be a foundation for marriage? Or has this dating period shown me that the costs are, they're just, they're too, it's too expensive, so to speak, emotionally to stay in it. And right. it's, it's hard to juggle that. It's hard. It's very challenging. I agree with you. But I think the question needs to be not, are there any positives left? Right. But like you said, with Gottman and what I found in my work, are the costs to positives in that certain ratio? So do you have five positives that can outweigh the one negative. So if your costs are high, you could still have positives, but then the ratio isn't right. And that leads to unresolved conflict. It leads to tension. It leads to, it leads to irritation, annoyances, and all of those little annoyances and irritations and unresolved conflicts. And they're not always little eat away at happiness and eat away at stability. So weigh the costs and benefits. Don't ask the question, are there any positives left? Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Terry, I want to thank you so much for sharing your research and your wisdom with my listeners. Anyone who's interested in how to enhance their relationship, or prepare themselves for a strong, a happy, extraordinary marriage. We're not looking for mediocre with this marriage stuff. Let's be extraordinary and as happy as possible in this relationship. So I want to thank you for coming on the program today. Where can listeners find you on social media and so forth? Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's been a pleasure. My website is Dr. Terry, D-R-T-E-R-R-I, thelovedoctor.com. And so that's all one word, Dr. Karen, Dr. Terry, thelovedoctor.com. And when you go on my website, you can find my books, my podcasts, my TEDx talk, uh, where I'm presenting all over the world or country. And I welcome contact with your listeners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. 
The love and life hack for this week is, it's the little things. Dr. Cherry's research shows us that truly it's the little habits that we develop as we interact with each other, making sure we continue to affirm one another, value one another. And when we do have conflict, we're mindful of how we communicate with each other. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. As always, it's been a pleasure having you with me this week. An extra big thank you to those of you who've subscribed to the podcast and have reviewed it. It means so much to me. It helps others find us and join the Love and Life family. If you have a question for me, head over to my website, click on the question tab. I have some new and more personal ways of connecting with you to help you strategize and find solutions. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.